This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Isaiah 65, 17-25 For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and, not, and an, another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear, or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And their descendants with them, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the great things uh, during... The season like Advent is that um, there's so much beyond the sermon that tells a story. The liturgy, the songs, the readings, the decor that exists here, that kind of preaches a story to us as well. Our art piece uh, that you, if you were here last week, you notice it looks different this week. Um, that's telling a story as well, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So last week it was together as a globe, right, talking about the God's creation of a, a good world today, sort of, and we didn't plan for it to actually fall down, but <laughs> things fall apart, and, and we're talking about uh, a weary world in this series, and then you'll get to see it put back together over the next few weeks, so thanks to the Capaccios for putting that together for us. But as we begin, let's uh, pray together, and we'll get into our passage this morning. Would you pray with me? God of power and mercy, would you open our hearts in welcome Would you remove the things that hinder us from receiving Christ with joy? Would you help us to rejoice in his coming? And would you help us to be prepared for his second coming? Would you use even our time together this morning toward that end? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have seen the amazing things that art restorers can do these days? Pretty, uh, Really, it's pretty shocking. They can take... An oil painting, for example, that has become blackened and encrusted with centuries of dust and grease and candle smoke. And with great power, uh, powerful cleaning agents, great care and attention, they can make these pieces look almost as good as new. For example, um, you can see that piece there. This is a previously lost portrait, Charles Dickens, the writer of Christmas Carol. Painting was found amongst some knickknacks in a market in South Africa, and as you can see what it was found like on the left-hand side there, it was completely covered in mold. And of course then, uh, the work of restoration and cleaning began, and you can see how 
while it was restored. Sometimes the work of restoration is not just the wear and tear of the years, but it's actually an attempt to repair bad, shoddy repairs that were attempted before. Here is a marble sculpture that had been painted over multiple times, trying to hide imperfections, trying to cover over previous blemishes, and it started to flake and to crumble, and it took dozens and dozens of careful cleanings before the beauty underneath was eventually unveiled. The same kind of restoration can be done for uh, antiques, for example, this clock on the left-hand side there, or uh, clothing like that bomber jacket in the middle, or even vehicles like that old stagecoach. And it's a pretty rigorous process if you've ever read about any of this. It's part science. You need to have the right chemicals that can remove the dust and the dirt and the grime, but at the same time would not destroy the original material underneath. But it's also, it's not just science, it's, it's an art in and of itself because it takes steady hands and careful touch and a, a real sense of an artist, the original artist's vision. And the whole premise of art restoration is the idea that old things can be new again. Things broken down and spoiled can be restored to beauty and glory. And the key verse for us this morning in that passage that Zach just read to us from Isaiah 65 is verse 17, where Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And then as Isaiah goes on to tell us what that means... He's clearly not thinking about some totally different place up there somewhere, up in heaven, but he's talking about the fullness of joy and the fullness of life here on earth. He's talking about an earth that is restored to health, that's put back together in fruitfulness and harmony, an earth that is renewed and cleansed from all the effects of sin and evil. And Pastor Ryan kicked off our Advent series last week, and in this series we're thinking about Christ's mission through this lens, a mission that began at Christmas, but continues on through Good Friday and through Easter. Christ's mission is a rescue mission all the way through. As C.S. Lewis has said, he came down to come up again, to bring the whole ruined world up with him. A thrill of hope, we sing. The weary world rejoices at the coming of Christ into the world at his first advent, but also as the mission is consummated at the end in his second advent. Advent. And so our task this morning is to look at the restoration project as Isaiah describes it for us. What kind of renewal did Christ come to bring? What kind of future are we looking forward to as his people? And then how does that help us now in the midst of truly a weary world? So Isaiah, we're going to see as we walk through it, is going to show us a world of joy, a world of permanence, and a world of peace world of joy, a world of permanence, and a world of peace. So let's get into it this morning. First, a world of joy. Again, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So there is, first of all, the joy of a world made new, a joy of a world put back together, renewed. Now, I'll have to tell you, I, I struggled with the idea of heaven, new heavens, new earth, the kingdom of God, I struggled with the idea of heaven for the longest time in my life because the image that I had in my mind was not a biblical one, but it was more of a, a pop culture-shaped idea of heaven, sort of little fat angels, cherubs, you know, sitting on clouds all day, playing harp music. And I thought to myself, I don't even like the harp that much. 
And that looks pretty boring uh, to me, right? I didn't, for the longest time, did not want to go to heaven because life down here seems so much more interesting, seems so much more exciting. And I couldn't tell you how encouraged I was when I finally read the Bible on these things and discovered that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, there is a continuity between what we experience now in this world and what the new world will be like in the end. It's going to be a physical, tangible reality. We have every reason to believe that you're going to eat and laugh and sing and dance and explore and work in this new world that God will make. You see, the creation is not just going to dissolve away. It's going to be renewed or transformed. God is not ditching the world that he's made. He's remaking it. Paradise regained, if you will. And we get a hint at this with the words that the Bible uses and we use theologically to describe the work of salvation. Right? Think about these words, redemption. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to buy back, to buy someone's freedom. The images of a kidnapping or an enslavement. Redemption then right, is to give back the freedom that once was enjoyed, to restore the freedom that once was enjoyed. Or think reconciliation. Right? What does that mean? The image here is of friends who have fallen out or former allies who have declared war upon each other. And so salvation then is to be reconciled to the original relationship, the restoration of the original alliance. The word renewal literally means making new again. What once was brand new has gotten the worse for wear, now renovated, brought back to its former glory, like we were talking about with art restoration, regeneration, a return to life after the entrance of death. Even the Greek word for salvation itself is the word soteria. It generally has the meaning of health or security after sickness or danger. As a matter of fact, the first English translation of the Greek New Testament published by William Tyndale in 1525 translates the word salvation, health, all the way through. Christ then is the great physician, right, who heals our sicknesses, binds up our wounds, restores us to who we're made to be, to health. All these terms for salvation suggest a restoration of some good thing that was spoiled or lost or has come apart. God refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sends his own son to save his original project. But how do we then square this? with other places in Scripture that seem to suggest uh, the world being completely obliterated or destroyed, right? For example, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says this, The heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, you read that and you might think, right, isn't God just going to destroy the world entirely by fire? I mean, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Isn't it all going to burn? And so, therefore, is there really any continuity between what we have now and what we can expect in the future? Now, as we say all the time here, right, the important thing in reading any passage of Scripture is context, right? And in 2 Peter 3, the context that Peter is dealing with, he's dealing with folks who mock the idea of a final judgment at all. And so what Peter is doing is reminding them that God has done this work of judging the world before. In fact, he says in 2 Peter 3, 6, the verse very, the one right before the one I just read to you, 
He says, God has done the work of judgment before. He did the work of destroying the earth in judgment in the flood with Noah and the ark. He says, God destroyed the earth with the flood. Same language, right? Destruction of the earth. But of course we know, right? The earth was destroyed in the flood, but not in the sense that it was obliterated, right? The earth did not cease to exist afterwards. It was merely cleansed of evil. It was washed It was made new. And Peter says it will be like that in the end as well, except with a fiery judgment. He says a refiner's fire is the image, purifying the world of evil and of sin. God will not abandon the world. He instead is going to renew it. There's continuity, in other words, then, between the world now and the world to come. But there's also a discontinuity. And we see that as well in verse 17. The end of verse 17, uh, Isaiah says, The former things shall not be remembered or come into the world. You know what that means? It means about five seconds into the kingdom of God, we're going to look at each other and turn to one another. We're going to say things like cancer, terrorism, rape, sick children, abuse, What's that? I almost can't remember. It's a fading memory. It's a shadow that's going away. I can't seem to remember. The new world will be the undoing of sin and evil and death and all the things that break things apart, that rupture the harmony that was supposed to be here. It's going to be the undoing of the curse. We sing it all the time at Christmas time. Enjoy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, for he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. At the end of The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf is not dead as he had previously thought. And he sees Gandalf and he cries, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? God is on a rehab mission and it starts with Christmas, but it will be consummated at the end when Jesus returns in his second advent. Which is the joy Isaiah is painting for us a picture of a world made new. But then secondly, there's the joy of community in this place. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. God is making a new Jerusalem, a new city. Both Isaiah in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation In the New Testament, picture a new world with a city at its center, a dense, urban, diverse, wonderful, creative, artistic, interesting place with sights and smells and colors and architecture and tribes and tongues and languages gathered there. And for some of us, I know that idea of a city is a difficult image for the kingdom of heaven. I mean, after all, cities in our world have all kinds of Difficulty and, and trouble, don't they? Uh, Jonathan Kozal, I think I'm saying that right, a uh, social psychologist, worked for the Rockefeller Institute. He wrote a book a number of years ago called Amazing Grace, wherein he interviews children living in the South Bronx, which at the time of the book's writing was one of the most crime-ridden and impoverished neighborhoods in America. And he interviewed one young girl in the book. Uh, her name was Isabel, and this is what she said. She said, do you ever hear of cities that existed long ago and are extinct today? I believe that this will happen here in New York. Everyone will get so sick of life in Harlem and the South Bronx that we'll just give up and move somewhere else. 
but it'll be the same thing there again until the new place is so sad and ugly it's destroyed. And then we'll move again to somewhere else and somewhere else until the whole world is destroyed and there's nothing to look back on but the ashes. She's actually anticipating the whole plot line of the movie WALL-E, if you've ever seen it. A sad commentary on life in a fallen world where things fall apart. But Isaiah tells us this will not be the end of the story because a different kind of city is coming, a different kind of world is coming with a new Jerusalem at its center, a city of harmony, a city that lasts, a city of holiness, a city of joy, a place that God has put back together again. Let's keep reading because there's also going to be the joy of human flourishing in this place. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Now, what we're saying here is uh, we're not going to be the only ones singing joy to the world in the new creation. God will be singing it too, or he'll be singing something like it because he will have joy in his people. Why? Because finally, we're going to be flourishing in all the ways that we were meant to. No more, it goes on, no more shall be heard. In it, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Kara Tippetts is the author of the book, The Hardest Peace, a book that she wrote while she was battling cancer. She's the wife of a church planter in our little family of churches. And Kara died a few years ago. And a filmmaker uh, is making a documentary about their family and her life and her last days. And in the trailer to the film, Kara says... I feel like I'm a little girl at a party whose dad is asking her to leave early and I'm throwing a fit. I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to go. Death is a hateful intruder, a terrible interruption in our relationships and in our world. Genesis 3 tells us that death has come into this world because of sin. It's not meant to be here. We're not supposed to lose the ones that we love. That's not how things are supposed to be. And Isaiah tells us that's not how things will be. Verse 19, no more, no more shall be heard the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, when you get to verse 20, it seems like maybe there's a contradiction there. Verse 20 reads, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. Now, that part makes sense, right? It's a consistent picture of human flourishing. But it goes on. It says, For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. It may leave you with the question, is there death in the new heavens and the new earth? Now, Revelation 21 says no, unequivocally, clearly, no death in the new heavens and the new earth. Actually, Isaiah himself says no. Back in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, he says, God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So, Revelation says no, Isaiah says no. So, what then could verse 20 mean? Here's how one theologian, biblical scholar, Alec Mateer, puts it. I think we have the words on the screen. Interpreting verse 20. He says, throughout this passage, Isaiah uses aspects of what we know to create impressions of what is to come. 
In this present order, we know that death cuts life off, but not so in the New Jerusalem. No infant will fail to come to maturity, nor the elderly be foiled of fulfillment. It's not meant to suggest that death will still be present. It simply affirms that over the whole of life, the power of death will be gone. And so Isaiah is saying the flourishing and joy and fulfillment in this place at the end is such that even if there was such a thing as death, someone dying at 100 would seem like a young man. So full, so rich, so enduring is this place, which leads us then to the next point, right? So he talks about a world of joy, but this is also a world of permanence. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruits. This is a picture of enduring stability. Now, we all know that there are a lot of joys in this world that are fleeting, right? A lot of things that bring joy but then go away pretty quickly. Christmas gifts are a pretty good example of this. If you have small kids, you probably will experience this in a few weeks. Christmas gifts, for the most part, right, are more fun in the moment than they tend to be over time, right? There's exceptions to the rule, but let's just imagine with me for a second, right? Christmas morning, there's that great anticipation, seeing things under the tree, wrapping papers and, and, and bows and, you know, stockings full and so much fun and excitement. But by the end of January, and in many cases much sooner, right, some of those same toys that bring so much joy to open up are broken, Some of them, if you're in my house, that have little pieces, they're all lost or down the vents, you know, and I'm cleaning them up months later. And in many cases, right, those things that bring so much joy, then by the end of January or February are relegated to a pile of things that my kids call boring, right? A lot of joy in this life is like that. It's fleeting, Very often we start things, and for one reason or another, we don't get to see it to completion. We don't get to see it to its finish. But not in the new world, Isaiah says. Verse 21, it's the image of planting a vineyard, which I've been told is a a major investment. Not only because of the land and the care involved and so on, but, but also because of how long it takes for the vines to mature. Apparently, it can be decades before there's any real payback on the investment of Starting a vineyard, planting a vineyard, it's a long game, in other words. And all kinds of things can happen in the meantime that prevents you from seeing the fruit of your labor. But what do we have here in Isaiah's vision? In the kingdom of God, those who plant the vineyards enjoy the fruit. Those who build the houses get to stay in them. It's not just remodel and move on, but there's an enduring stability rather than fleeting enjoyments. And similarly, verses 22 and 23 tell a story of fulfillment. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. How much of the work and toil in this world do you not get to see the full results of, the fulfillment of. My guess is it's a lot if you start to total it up. You can spend months, for example, and most of you know something like this in your work. Months, just for example, cultivating a contact, right? Only to see somebody else swoop in and close the deal and get the commission and receive the credit and all that work you put in. doesn't seem to pan out. Or you write code for an app that's obsolete within 
months after it hits the market. Or you pour your energy as a teacher into students only to see their lives or their careers or their academics cut short for some reason or they blow it off or they're not serious about it or they don't get the parental support and you feel frustrated as an educator. You pour into your children as parents or you invest in a relationship and it never quite feels reciprocated. This is Genesis 3 kind of stuff. This is world falling apart kind of stuff. Work in a a fallen world has thorns and thistles. But not so, Isaiah says, in the kingdom of God. There, your labor will not be in vain. The kingdom will be a place of joy. It will be a place of permanence. And finally, it will be a world of peace. And there will, first of all, be peace with God. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Right now, in our world, in a world with a curse, now in a world that's broken, we have friction in our relationship with God. There's friction that prevents this kind of easy call and response, this easy connection with our maker. We call out to God and we wonder, is he there? Is he listening? Is he near? Is he present with me in the midst of this weary world? Or maybe we forget to call out on God altogether, right? God becomes a side note or a bit character in the story that we're creating for our life where we're the main character and God's relegated to the sidelines. This friction, this distance comes from sin. But Isaiah says this barrier will be gone in the new heavens and the new earth. We didn't look at the early part of Isaiah 65, but what Isaiah does in the first 16 verses of this chapter is to make clear that the new world is for new people. That is, we cannot bring our sin and selfishness with us into the new world. Something needs to change within us. The new world is only suitable for a new kind of people. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to make us new. He's come to bring about a renewal and recreation within us. That's what Christmas is about. The New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam because he is the source of a new humanity which will people this new heavens and new earth. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Has that happened for you? Has that happened for you? Has Christ made you new? Has he washed your sin? The invitation this Christmas is to come to him. He can do that even now. You can have peace with God even now. But that peace will be most fully enjoyed in the new world that's coming. But let's keep going with verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And the Hebrew word for all this, this idea, this putting back together, this harmony in the new creation, the Hebrew word for this is shalom. It means something like harmony. It means wholeness. It means flourishing. It means the way things are supposed to be, everything working together for good. That's shalom. There's a book uh, called The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek uh, by uh, Andy Dillard, won the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, it's a memoir. Andy Dillard uh, goes and sits down by a creek and begins to 
observe the things she sees around her, Tinker Creek in the mountains of Virginia. So she's observing the natural world. She's observing nature. She's writing things down. And what she observes is terrifying to her. I mean, she's looking at the natural world, and what she sees and what she concludes is, you know what? Violence rules everywhere. Everywhere in nature is violent. She was particularly affected by watching a large water bug jump on top of a frog and inject the frog with a poison that liquefied its insides and then sucks out the inside of the frog. I see some of your facial expressions, right? Like that's, yeah, she watches the, that's what Annie Dillard experienced, right? She watches the frog collapse in on itself and she realized this is how nature works. This is the world in which we live. This is the the fracturing of the world. This is things falling apart. This is the strong eating the weak. That's the law of nature. I've been trying to get my children to watch nature documentaries with me, and they are not super into it uh, for some reason. And uh, I think the reason being is my daughter, Lucy, uh, was scarred the first time that I, I watched Planet Earth with her, which is a really wonderful uh, documentary, but she was maybe a little young. She was two or three when we started watching this together. And in the first episode, I remember this clear as day. She's 12 now, but so 10 years ago, we're watching this. And she's sitting next to me on the couch. We're watching the first episode. And 10 minutes in, a hyena chases down, kills an antelope, and then begins to devour it right there on screen, right? In HD, right there in front of you. And my daughter's sitting next to me, and she is freaking out while this is happening. And from that point on, whenever a new animal would come on the screen, she would say, Daddy, what do they eat? You know, and she's anticipating being subjected to another animal massacre, you know, of some kind. Well, this is what Annie Dillard experienced as well. She said, something's wrong. She said, either something is wrong with the world, that is, things are more violent than they should be, and I'm right to have the experience that Lucy had, to be affected by the life and death struggle that exists in our world. Either something's wrong in the world, and I'm right to be shocked by this, or, she says, nature is okay, and something's wrong with us. And Annie Dillard says this, it's our emotions and values that are amiss. We're the freaks. The world is fine. So let's go all go have lobotomies to restore us to a natural state. Then we can go back to the creek lobotomized and live on its bank as untroubled as any muskrat or reed. But you first. (laughs) Let's all go get lobotomies, but you first, right? Now, what is she saying here? She's saying that if our ideas are right, if we can imagine a better world, a world of justice and shalom and peace and where the strong don't eat the weak and on and on, right? Then that means that the world as we have it now is disordered in some way and it's in need of renewal. If death and violence are unnatural in that sense, and that's what we see in nature, then there must be a super nature. If we have a sense that the weak are to be protected, and that's not what we see in the world around us, then there must be something outside of our world that's communicating these ideas to us. There is another world coming, Isaiah says, where the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The thrill of hope we sing. A weary world rejoices. So what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, Christmas is the beginning of this rescue mission. He came down to bring the whole world up again. 
At Christmas, Jesus comes down into a broken world to start the process of renewal. And as Jesus goes through his life, not just in his being born into the world, but as he grows up, he begins to announce the breaking in of this new world, the kingdom of God. And he doesn't just announce, he doesn't just teach, but he also accompanies that with miracles, right? He heals people. The miracles of Jesus are never just naked displays of power, but they're always restorations. Did you ever notice that? He's always putting things back together, restoring sight, cleansing lepers, healing the lame, casting out evil, calming storms, raising the dead. Jesus is renewing the world bit by bit. And then he goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled, restored to God. And then he rises from the dead to defeat sin and Satan and death itself, our last enemy. And then he ascends to heaven to prepare a place for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And so now we wait and we watch and we hope and we pray and we bear witness to the thrill of hope that there's a new world coming. And so when you sing these Christmas carols this year, when you sing these Advent hymns this season, pay attention to how many of them are about waiting and watching and hoping, looking back to Jesus' entrance into the world the first time, but but looking ahead to his return when he's going to make all things new. And in the meantime... While we wait for this final advent, we look for all the little advents, the little ways that Jesus Christ and his kingdom break into our lives. We respond, as the carol says, let every heart prepare him room. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.